First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, and you turn with me to 2 Samuel 15, the text that was just read for us. And you know, as you're turning there a couple nights ago, I had the chance to watch uh, the movie The Lion King with my family, not the old animated one, but the one that just came out uh, last year. And you know, I had seen the old animated one a lot of times, but it's been a long time since I had seen that. And so it's been a while since I had seen that story, but that is a really sad story. Right? I mean, when, when little Simba, right, has to, has to watch his, his daddy lion Mufasa die in that gorge, in that stampede, I mean, that is a sad scene. Now, now don't get me wrong. I didn't cry or anything. If I cried in The Lion King, I do think I'd have to get my man card up probably at that, at that point. I didn't cry, but, but it is a sad, sad movie for sure. And, and really, kind of every movie, every good story has that, that moment in it that uh, that low point for the hero of the story where, where everybody is reaching for the tissue box, right? Where, where it's, it's so sad and you just, you wonder how is the hero going to make it through this? Well, well, this scene in the life of King David, this story that we've been walking through as we walk verse by verse through First and Second Samuel, this, this part of David's story is the tissue box part of the story. Right, as everyone's reaching for that, because this is the saddest moment, a moment where it looks like all hope is lost, where you don't know uh, how David is going to make it through. It's a sad time in David's life as his son Absalom has usurped his throne. David finds out about it and has to evacuate the capital city of Jerusalem. And so here is this one, this mighty warrior who even as a little boy was killing giants with a sling and a stone. And here we see him walking barefoot on the ground, weeping as he goes, slinking his way out of the city. This is a sad scene in King David's Life And the thing is, as, as the reader of the story, you really don't know whether to be sad for David or not. Because it's a sad moment in his life, and yet, if you've been walking with us through David's story, you also know that even though David's life is a mess right now, a lot of this mess is his own making. Right, back in chapter 11, David slept with another man's wife and then killed her husband, to try to cover his tracks. And even though David has confessed his sin and God has forgiven him, even though God forgave him, he told him in chapter 12 that there was going to be a lot of consequences that were going to happen, both to David and to his family, because of the sin that he had committed. And so as we see this unfolding and, and we see what Absalom is doing, we understand that even this, even, even Absalom's actions here, as sinful as they are, are really a part of God's discipline of his servant David because of his own sin. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that in your life, where your life is broken, where your life is messy, but it's also kind of complicated. Because while part of the mess as sinful decisions maybe that others are making and sinful things that others are doing to you, you also know deep inside that part of the mess that you're experiencing is the result of your own sinful 
choices in the past. Have you, have you ever been there? I know that I have. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard to sort that all out when you know that part of it is a result of your own actions. What, what does faith look like in a time like that? What does faith look like when your life is a messy, complicated, seeming disaster? Here, here's what I hope we will all see in David's story today. When life is a mess, and even when that mess is partly our own making. Our faith is in the greatness of the grace of God. That's what we'll see in David's story today. We're going to walk with David as he leaves the palace with his few friends and goes off into exile. As we walk with David, we're going to meet all the people that David meets along the way. And along the way, we're going to see David's faith in God on display. And all together, I want us to see five characteristics of the kind of faith that we need when life is a mess. Here's the first characteristic of faith that we will see. Faith receives God's encouragement. And oftentimes, that encouragement comes through godly friends. Verse 15, a loyal messenger comes to David and breaks the news that really the rest of the country already knew, that the hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom. And immediately in the next verse, David gets his household together and decides to get out of Jerusalem before Absalom gets there. I think he does that for a couple of reasons. Maybe he thinks that his chances in battle are better out in the open field, but Also, I think he doesn't want the battle to take place in the city of Jerusalem and for the city to be destroyed in the wake of the fighting. He wants the fighting to occur elsewhere. In verse 15, David's household servants tell him that they will go with him. That that includes his servants, his his personal detachment of troops. It includes, of course, his wives and his children, his family members. This is who leaves with David this day as he flees the palace, says that David asked them all to stop at the last house on the road before they left town. And he has them do a walk-by, and they march in front of the king, and he reviews those who were with him. You can imagine how much it meant to see each one walk by. In this moment in his life where it seemed like the whole nation had deserted him and betrayed him, to see each faithful one walk by was an encouragement to David. The storyteller doesn't tell us everyone who was there that day, but in verse 18, he points out a few groups, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, who had been with David a long time. In fact, many believe that these groups of foreign soldiers were a part of David's original 600-man army that he had way back when he was on the run from King Saul. And then the narrator focuses on another group, the Gittites. These were Philistine troops that came from the city of Gath, And they hadn't been with David a long time. In fact, they had only recently joined David's side. And so in verses 19 and 20, David speaks to the leader of the Gittites, a man named Ittai, and he basically tells him, listen, I know you didn't sign up for this. I know when you joined my team, and you pretty much just joined my team yesterday, you didn't know that all this was going to happen. You didn't know that now you had joined up with with a king that's now in exile and going off to who knows where. And so I'm not expecting you to go with me. You can go back home, and it shows David's character and heart that he would think to send some of his troops back when he desperately, I'm sure, wanted to keep all of them with him. 
But Ittai hears David's words, and he will have none of it. In fact, in verse 21, look at what he says. Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. He takes an oath in the name of the Lord, and he binds himself to David. He says, David, I'm going to go with you. You're my king. I'm going to go with you even in life and death. It reminds me of what another foreigner would say to an Israelite mother-in-law, Ruth, when she pledged herself to go with Naomi, no matter what would come. Again, if you put yourself in David's position, how much do you think what Ittai said meant to him? How much encouragement do you think he received from from hearing those words? I'm going to go with you, David, whether it means my life or my death. And if you read on, you see that he even brought his little children with him too. This this man, Ittai, was all in, bringing their whole families along with David out in the middle of the wilderness. You know, really at, at all times of our life, but especially in down times in our life, we all need some encouragement. We, we all need some Ittai's, don't we? Who would say, no matter what you're going through, I, I'm with you. And I'm going to be with you no matter what. I'm going to be with you in the highs and I'm going to be with you in the lows. I, I think back in, in my own life, especially with some of the medical things that my family went through when our kids were born. And I think about some of the friends that God used to encourage us in an unbelievable way during that time. I'm forever grateful for the love that they show to us. God knows when we need some encouragement, doesn't he? He, he knows when we need some, some ties to, to come to us and to strengthen us and to lift up our hands. And here's the other thing. There's probably somebody in your life right now who is hurting who could probably use an itai too. Probably somebody around you, their name has maybe been coming to your mind right now, is going through a hard time. They need an itai. They need someone to come alongside them and encourage them in their, in their faith. First off, the kind of faith we need receives God's encouragement. And often that encouragement comes through godly friends. But secondly, the kind of faith we need when our life is a mess is a faith which doesn't try to use God, but instead trusts God to do what is best. Verse 23 says that David and his band of friends crossed over the brook Kidron, which was a valley that ran between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives beside it. And it's at this moment that two of the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, show up and they're carrying with them a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a very special thing. It represented the presence of God among his people. And I'm sure that these priests carried the Ark out to David that day to encourage him. They wanted David to feel like he had the presence of God with him. They wanted David to to feel like when this battle with Absalom inevitably comes, God is going to be on your side. It was kind of them to do, but what strikes me is how David responds to that offer. Look at verse 25. The king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. You know, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, you might remember the story where the Israelites tried to use the ark like it was a little good luck charm. 
right? They carried the ark just like this out onto the field of battle and set it there because they thought as long as we have this piece of holy furniture with us, then that means God is on our side and we will inevitably win the battle because God cannot let us down if we have the ark. Well, they found out that God cannot be manipulated, that God doesn't fit in our little boxes, that God doesn't do what we tell him to do. And David already knew that. David wasn't going to repeat that mistake here. As one person put it, David knew that what mattered wasn't whether he had God's furniture, was whether he had God's favor. And also, I I don't know that David was so sure that he had God's favor at this particular time in his life. Again, David knew that what was happening to him was in part God's judgment upon him because of his sin. And so he allows God to be God. He doesn't know whether it's God's will for him to lose this battle or to win it. And he says, if God in his grace allows me to have the victory and allows me to come back to Jerusalem, then I will go into the tent of the Lord and I will worship before the ark. I will do it again if his grace allows that to take place. But whatever God decides to do, I'm okay with that. In fact, the end of verse 26 really shows the posture of David's heart when he says this, let him do to me as seems good to him. David was okay with whatever God thought was best in his life. And I want to be clear that this isn't just a resignation to blind fate. This isn't an act of, of, of apathy or, or despair. That This is a godly, humble submission to the will of God. And whether God's will for David meant in the short term his earthly good or his earthly disaster, David's, David's confidence and his hope was in the fact that he was eternally secure in the grip of God. Let God do what seems good to him. I'm afraid that a lot of times we can't say that. But we don't want to say, let God do what seems good to him. We want to say, let God do what seems good to me. And then oftentimes we get mad at the Lord when he doesn't do what we think is best. And, and I think sometimes we get mad even when we know that's what, what is happening to us is partly a result of the consequences of our own sin. We still get mad at God. And we still say, well, this isn't fair and God shouldn't let this happen. And, and, and I should basically get off without any consequences at all. And we raise up our fists at the God who saved us in anger because he doesn't do what we think he should do. But some of us are wired in such a way that we swing the total other way. But we do accept the fact that God has the right to give us consequences for our sins. But what we do is is we throw up our hands and say, okay, well, my life is basically over now. You know, God is out to get me now because of my sin, and so he's basically put me up on on his shelf forever, and I'm banished to the wasteland of Christian existence. There's nothing I can do now for the rest of my life. Some of us tend to swing that way. And the hard part is, is keeping our heart where David's heart was, in this place of humble submission to the will of God, where we say to God, yes, God, you have the right to discipline me. 
And if you discipline me, I know you're doing it because you're a father who disciplines the sons that he loves. And I submit myself to whatever you think is best. Whatever you think that I need in my life, I humbly receive that. But but also, God, I trust you no matter what, because I know no matter what happens in the short term, no matter what earthly consequences may come, I am yours and you are mine. That's the kind of humble submission that God wants us to have. It's a faith that doesn't try to use God and get God to do what we want. It's a faith that trusts God to do what is best. That's what David shows us here. What we're going to see next is another characteristic of the kind of faith we need. Number three, we need a faith that worships and prays even through tears, knowing that God hears his children. Verse 30 is probably the saddest verse in this story. Look at that with me. It says, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, had his head covered and went barefoot. All the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. So here is David climbing up the Mount of Olives barefoot and weeping. And as one has said, there's probably a lot of reasons why David was crying. He was weeping out of remorse and repentance because of the sins that he had committed that he knew had led to this state. He was weeping because of what his son Absalom was doing, the evil that he was committing. He was weeping because of what all of this meant for Israel, what it meant for God's people, what it meant for God's name. But verse 32 says that when he reaches the top of the Mount of Olives, he worships the Lord there. And that's pretty powerful to me for a number of reasons. One is because it's at that very spot at the top of the Mount of Olives where the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. And it's also at that very spot where the Bible says the Lord Jesus is going to return to earth when he returns. And it's at that spot that David stops and worships God. But it's also powerful to me because we just read that he was weeping as he walked and yet he worships even through his tears. He knows that he is under the hand of God's discipline, but he also knows that God still loves him. He also knows that God is worthy of all his worship and all his praise, and so he stops and he worships God. Friends, when our life is a mess, Our tendency, and I can say this from personal experience, our tendency is to want to pull away. Our our, our tendency is to want to pull away from worship, to pull away from prayer, to pull away from fellowship with other believers, to pull away from doing what we're doing right now, to, to come together as the church. Our tendency is to want to draw back. And yet it's at that very moment when we least feel like worshiping that we most need to worship. Not only does he worship, but he prays. And he prays because he knows God will still hear him. And he prays for something very specific. In verse 31, David took another blow when he finds out that his most trusted advisor, a man named Ahithophel, has defected and has gone over to team Absalom. This was a huge blow. We're going to find out next week that Ahithophel's counsel was so much on point, it was so accurate that whatever he said happened. I mean, having Ahithophel on your team is like having Justin Bieber in your new boy band startup. 
right? It's like having Mike Trout on your baseball team, right? Everybody wants Ahithophel on their team, and now Absalom had him, and David did not have him. And so how does David take this news? He goes to the Lord in prayer. He says, oh Lord, would you turn the counsel of Ahithophel from wisdom into foolishness? That's what he prays. And what I love is that God answers his prayer like two seconds later. Because two seconds later, in verse 32, another one of his counselors shows up, this man named Hushai. And and to make a long story short, David says, Hushai, I could really use you a lot more in Jerusalem than I can use you out here in the country. What I want you to do, I want you to go to Absalom. I want you to pretend that you're on team Absalom. And whatever Ahithophel says, I want you to say something else. And then I want you to use a little chain of informers that I've set up with the priests and with their kids to send messages to me about whatever Absalom is about to do. I think David intuitively knew that Hushai showing up at that exact moment was the beginning of God's answer to his prayer to turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And we're going to find out next time that's exactly what God does. All of this was an answer to a prayer that David prayed at the top of Mount Olives. Your life might be messy right now, and because of that, you may not feel like praying. You might even feel like, you know, you might even start to think, I don't even think God wants to hear my prayers. But Christian, that's not the case. The Bible says his ears are always open to our cry. Now, if there is sin in our heart, we're not to regard it. We're to bring that sin before him and confess it and repent of it. But our Father wants to hear us pray. You know, last night, uh, in the middle of the night, our little two-year-old son, Zeke, woke up crying. And when he woke up crying, you know what Megan and I did? And we rolled back over and went back to sleep, amen? Because that boy needs to toughen up. No, we didn't do that. Right? Megan heard him crying, and she went to him, and she helped him. As any mom would do. And, and, and it's the same way with our Father. When, when, when our hearts are breaking and we cry out to Him in prayer, our God doesn't roll back over and go to sleep. He comes to us. And He hears us. Because He loves us. So keep talking to God about all that's in your heart. Even when you don't know what to say. The Bible says the Spirit of God prays along with us with groans that can't even be uttered. And know that your Father in heaven hears you. Let's pick up the story in chapter 16. Look at the first few verses. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. The king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and Summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I might find favor in your sight, my lord. The king. So far, we've seen three characteristics of the kind of faith we need when our life is a mess. Here's characteristic number four faith marvels at God's mysterious providing just what we need, just when we need it. 
David continues his march out of Jerusalem and the parade of people that come to meet him continues. And this guy's name is Ziba. Now we've met Ziba before back in chapter 9. He is a servant who is assigned to take care of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, who was lame in his feet and could not walk. And so Ziba's job was to take care of him. And, and, and Ziba comes and he gives David a gift. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And then David asks Ziba, well, where is Mephibosheth? Why is he not here? And Ziba tells him, well, he stayed back in Jerusalem because he thinks that now the kingdom's going to be returned to him. That somehow out of all this, he's going to end up becoming the king. Now we find out later in chapter 19 that Ziba is lying through his teeth. That he actually tricked Mephibosheth and left him behind and that Mephibosheth was not disloyal to David at all, but David believes what Ziba tells him and, and actually makes a snap judgment. And he says, well, everything that was Mephibosheth is now yours. There is a takeaway for us in that. Like it says in Proverbs, you know, make sure we listen to both sides of a story before we make a decision about what is true. But what's amazing to me is that even though Ziba is lying here, even though his heart is not right, even though he's just trying to earn points with David in case somehow David manages to win this battle. Even though all of that is the case, God still uses Ziba to bring David and to bring David's men a gift that they desperately needed. Verse 1 says he brought him 200 loaves of bread, a lot of raisins, a, a lot of fruit and wine. In their rush to get out of Jerusalem, they probably didn't have time to gather adequate supplies. And God sends them, even through a lying little worm like Ziba, exactly what they needed, exactly when they needed it. Has that ever happened in your life? I can point to so many times in my life where, where God has provided exactly what we needed, even when we didn't know we needed it yet. Times when a, when a gift would come right before an, an expense or an unexpected bill would, would arrive. Times when, when God has provided uh, the encouragement that I needed. Maybe through a song that I heard. Maybe through a verse that I read. Maybe through a conversation that I had. Some, some time in my life when God meets me with exactly what I need. Exactly when I need it. Because God wants to encourage and strengthen and lift up the faith of his servants when that faith is beginning to stumble and he will even use a zeba if he has to to encourage our faith along look with me at verse 5 let's read what happens next it says now when king david came to behurim there was a man from the family of the house of saul whose name was shimei the son of gera coming from there he was out cursing continuously as he came and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has delivered the kingdom in the hand of Absalom your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. And then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. That'll handle it. <laughs> People without heads can't keep cursing, can they? Verse 10, But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, 
Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. In these final verses, there's one more characteristic of the kind of faith that we need to have when our life is a mess. We need a faith that humbly submits itself to God's hand, knowing he is a God who takes away the cursing we deserve and gives us a blessing that we don't deserve. You know, for some reason, this particular scene is the one I remember most from my childhood of reading through 2 Samuel. It's just emblazed in my mind, this scene of David walking along the road with his few companions and this man Shimei walking on the ridge above him with a little ravine between them. He's close enough to be able to throw down stones on top of him, but far enough away to think that he's safe. And he's like a little human tornado, as one person called him. He's, he's like a baseball manager that's mad at the umpire, and he's kicking up the dirt. And he's throwing stones. He's throwing literal stones and figurative stones with his words, verbal rocks. And he gives them a verbal beatdown. But along the way, he's actually making a theological argument about why all this is happening to David. Shimei thinks he knows why this is happening to David. And he tells him why in verse in verse 8, he says, The Lord has brought on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. What is he saying? He's saying, David, you are getting exactly what you deserve. You are a murderer, and God is paying you back. And that is why this has happened. That is why the Lord has given the kingdom to the hand of your son, Absalom. And it's at this moment, right, that as we saw, one of David's men, Abishai, is ready for action. He, he, he says, let me at him, coach. Let me take off his head. But David stops him from doing that. And it's super interesting to me why David tells his men to let Shimei keep on cursing him. He gives a couple of reasons. In verses 10 and 11, he actually says, the Lord has ordered him to curse me. Now, I don't think that David literally means that Shimei was on an errand from God. He knows that his heart is malicious. He knows that he's doing this out of his own anger and out of his own spite. But what he means is that this is a part of God's discipline and judgment upon David because of his sin. That this cursing that he is receiving is a part of what God is doing to judge him, to discipline him. Now part of what Shimei is saying is not true. Shimei was saying that David had stolen the throne from Saul and actually implying that he had killed Saul and killed some of Saul's relatives and taken the kingdom away by force, which we know from reading 2 Samuel that never happened. But part of what Shimei is saying is true, isn't it? He said, David, you're a bloodthirsty man. David, you're a murderer. And even though David hadn't murdered the house of Saul, like Shimei said he had, he had murdered someone. He had murdered Uriah and taken his wife 
to be his own. I heard about a pastor one time who after a service, one of his church members came up to him and just started laying into him. I mean, just telling him what a worthless pastor he was and he couldn't do anything right and he was a terrible sinner and just started listing all the sins that this pastor had presumably done and, and uh, just went on and on and on. And the pastor just, he sat there and he listened to everything that the person had to say. And at the end of that conversation, when the man was done, he looked at him and he said, I'm not as bad as you think I am. I'm worse. You know, that, that's the heart that David has here. Yeah, everything Shimei was saying wasn't right. David knows he's actually worse than that. If Shimei only knew the things that David had really done. And, and that's his attitude, an attitude of humility, an attitude of repentance to know we're actually far worse than anybody else knows except for God. And then in verse 12, he gives another reason for why he was going to let Shimei keep cursing him. Look at that with me. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. The original word in the Hebrew there, I believe, is the word iniquity or sin. That the Lord will look on my sin and that he will repay me with good for this cursing this day. Now, why would David say that God would look on his sin and repay him with blessing? Because that's the kind of God that David had come to know. A God who sees our sin, who sees the ugliness of our sin, the curse of sin that we deserve, and yet turns that cursing into blessing. Isn't that what happened, Christian, the day that you were saved? The Bible says we were all under the curse of our sin. And yet, because on the cross, Jesus became a curse for us because he took the curse that our sins deserved. Instead of the curse that we deserve, God can give us and has given us, if you're a Christian, a blessing that we don't deserve. Forgiveness and salvation and adoption. And so David says, I've seen God do it before. Maybe God will do it again. Even though I deserve his judgment, even though I deserve his discipline, even though I deserve this cursing that this little man is showering down on me right now, maybe God, who sees what he's saying and knows how much of it is true, maybe God will choose to bless me anyway because he's that good. That's the heart posture of David at this moment. He knows that the final word in his life will not be Shimei's word. And we should know that the final word in our life will not be Satan's word, but it will be God's. You know, Satan is really good at giving us half the gospel. Satan is really good at telling us what a sinner we are. And you know what? Is that true? That's true. Satan is really good at telling us how we've made a mess of our life because of our sin, how everything is broken because of our sin. And is that true? Yes, it is. But Satan strategically leaves out the other half of the gospel. He leaves the good out of the good news. And the good news is that even though we are sinners, Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And that is good news for all of us. That the last word doesn't belong to him. The last word belongs to God. And if we know Christ, it is a word of forgiveness. And so, friend, even if right now as a believer you feel that you are under the hand of God's discipline, don't forget that he loves you even as he disciplines you. 
that you are not perpetually under the frown of God. That if you are a Christian, you are perpetually under God's smile. And you will be for all eternity because his love will not let you and me go. You know, somewhere on this walk from Jerusalem to the Jordan River, David took out his pen and he wrote the words that we find in Psalm 3. Maybe he was thinking about Shimei walking on the ridge above him as he wrote these words. Look at them with me, Psalm 3. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him and God. That's what Shimei was saying. God, you, you, you can't, you're not going to help David. Not after all that that he has done, but David knew that that wasn't true. And so he wrote, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. If we know the Lord, then we can say that with David. You are my shield. There is help for me in God, no matter what. You are my glory, God. You are the lifter of my head because you are always with me. And we can also say what David said at the end of Psalm 3, salvation belongs to our God. Because you know what? David wasn't the last king of God's people who ever walked that same pathway out of Jerusalem and across that brook called Kidron. In fact, look at what it says in John chapter 18. Look at these words. This was the night before Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Isn't that amazing? Just like David, Jesus walked out of Jerusalem that night and he crossed the same brook, the brook Kidron, and he went to the same mountain, to the Mount of Olives, and a little garden that's at the base of that mountain called Gethsemane. Just like David, who was betrayed by his son Absalom, Jesus was betrayed by a close friend of his. And just like David, in the garden that night, one of David's companions wanted to try to fix the problem with violence, and Jesus told him to put his sword away. And he humbly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. And so in many ways, what Jesus went through that night is very much like what David went through in the story, but with one big difference. Again, what David was going through was in part a suffering brought about by his own sin. What Jesus did is he suffered for your sin and for mine. And because he did, no matter how much our life seems like it's a mess, we can set our faith in the greatness of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even when we do make a royal mess of things like David did here, God, you still love us. God, you don't let go of us. Your grip holds us fast. Father, I pray you encourage your children in this place who are going through a difficult time in their life. Help them to know they're not alone, that you hear their prayer, that you are there to strengthen and lift up their arms, that you want to teach them something, even through the valley. Father, I pray for any in this room that don't know you, that even this morning they might come to know the God who saves. In Jesus' name.
Amen.